always excited when I get to just pepper Mark with questions. And Liana's here. And I need to remind both ourselves, although we don't really need any reminding, uh, but anyone who gets any pleasure out of listening to this podcast that really, but for Liana being the backbone of this podcast and carrying us through multiple years of it, we would not have a podcast. So I am so, so damn grateful to Liana and to Mark for doing this. But we love our guests, but we really love talking amongst ourselves. And today, I think we're talking about something that is damn important. And I should forewarn you that Mark and I have some disagreements and that 99.99% of the time, Mark is right. I think he's probably right even this time, but I'm going to raise my questions regardless. But the thing that has bothered me has to do with Ukraine's very successful and smooth restructuring slash reprofiling where they had a spectacular approval rate from creditors who all agreed to give Ukraine an extension of maturities. I think that the, the approval rate was something like 90%. We all have sympathy for Ukraine, given the horrible war that they're dealing with. So you might ask, just what rude people would complain about any aspect of the Ukrainian person, person, not people. Person. Oh, yeah. What what rude person? And I really like a lot of the people who worked on the deal. So this is not about them. But there's something about this deal that really it worries me about how it could tank future deals. And so that's that's really what I want to talk about. And I'm going to say what it is, and then Mark can uh, maybe help elaborate on what it is or turn it back to me. And this is Ukraine's use of the power of redesignation. This is something that we talked about during the Argentine restructuring where Argentina, uh, to my mind, came up with this idea of redesignation and Pac-Man. And they did it in a kind of dirty way. And investors were up in arms about what was done. I thought that was the end of it, that well-behaved issuers not wanting to be Argentina's, uh, would refrain from engaging in such shenanigans. And certainly not a Ukraine that just has all of the favor of the market. But instead, what Ukraine did just really seemed like it was pushing the envelope, uh, the envelope on the Argentine strategy. And now I'll turn it over to Mark because I went on for too long and he can maybe just explain what's going on. <laughs> I, was, I was going to say, I bet the our vast listenership is divided into four people who know what you're talking about and one person who's confused. So for that one person's sake, I mean, the, the interesting thing 
about what Ukraine has done. And you're right that it matches in, in most respects what Argentina did. Is it proposed restructuring terms in effect to everybody? Using the so-called dual limb voting mechanism, so the the reprofiling, I should say, rather than restructuring, I guess, the reprofiling would take effect if two-thirds of the whole group in the aggregate supported it and if a majority of each bond series also supported it. And so the kind of implicit logic of that two-tiered voting mechanism is the debt gets modified only if it has broad support across all creditors and reasonable support by a majority of each group. So it's sort of a, a creditor protective idea. But Ukraine basically reserved the power to hold the vote and then to look across all of the bond series after the vote was taken And, you know, if some of them didn't vote in favor, it would just sort of kick them out and define the group of securities to be reprofiled to exclude them. And, and you know, the, it's basically like a politician getting to choose who their voters are after the votes are cast and counted. And, you know, we have all kinds of reasons why we don't think that that's such a good idea. Um, So for Argentina, me too, I my reaction was the same as yours. I thought it was kind of scummy, although I ultimately came to agree that it was a, what they did was allowed by the contracts. It took some cleverness to get there. They they basically had to modify the contract to remove the language that forbade them to do this. But I think where you and I disagree maybe is that it seems to me kind of like Ukraine's contracts allow this from the get-go. Do we not agree on that point? Okay, let, let, I don't I don't want to disagree with you right at this point because I think ultimately you are correct. But let me try to state it a little more precisely or a little more in a in a fashion that is advantageous to the position i'm taking argentina in its contracts had a provision that explicitly said that when you have an aggregated vote of all of the bond series you have to tell creditors of the different series which series will be included in the vote and which ones will be excluded. And it allows you to exclude some, but you tell them and that's final. And they literally use the word final. And that seems to make sense because uh, investors you know, want to know what, what, what the deal is and who's being excluded, who's not, and then they can make their decision. Now, you can have another vote, but you have to basically make a new offer and do everything over again. The Ukrainian contract, as I read it, doesn't have that provision that says it's final. It basically says nothing. Now, I, I think you there is good reason for you to disagree, but I think we should walk through it. So to me, the Ukrainian contract doesn't say anything. And the Ukrainians, from the saying nothing have pointed to an obscure notice provision to say that this notice provision 
meaning and notice provisions are for those who don't do contracts. It's just like a provision that says, here's going to be the rules of the game. This is how everybody's got to behave. We're going to have a vote. This is what's going to happen. This is how we're going to count the votes. From that provision, they're saying we are given clear authority to do what Argentina explicitly prohibited. Now, the Argentines found a sneaky way around it. The Ukrainians are saying, you know, our contracts don't require us to find a sneaky way around it. Our contracts explicitly give us that authority. I think, I, I know you're, I, you should explain um, your perspective on this. I don't think we disagree that much because ultimately, I think you are right. They probably do have the authority. I just, I don't think they have it as clearly as they are asserting. So, yeah, I think, I think, so we, we do agree on, I think, some of the fundamentals. And if I can just make a preliminary point, which is that you added something important early on in your, your discussion that um, sort of corrected uh, uh, one implication of my earlier comment when you when you clarified that it is okay to hold this aggregated vote uh, across a subset of the debt stock. And nothing requires uh, the government to propose a restructuring to everybody. It, it, it can pick and choose. Uh, and I think if I'm on what I understand your position, really what it's supposed to do is pick and choose ahead of the vote and make that final. At least that's what, what Argentina's contract specifically said. So there's, I guess, three things to point out about this contract. So first of all, of course, as you mentioned, it does not have any explicit requirement that the designation of the voting groups be final. So so we can take that out. I wouldn't quite agree, though, that the the contract is silent. So it seems to me that there are two provisions that are relevant here. So one is there's a provision that quite explicitly makes clear that a debt restructuring can encompass only a subset of the debt. So it's very explicit that a modification or action that's proposed using this aggregated voting mechanism can be made in, I think the language is, in respect of some series only of the debt securities. So we know that it's fine for Ukraine to, in effect, pick the securities that are going to be bound. And I I don't know how to read the contract other than to give Ukraine complete and total discretion in making that selection. So the question then is whether the choice has to be made before the vote and whether that choice is going to be final if it's made before the vote. And this notice procedure uh, that you mentioned is quite interesting. So first of all, it only applies, I think, to votes held at a meeting, which is already weird. Uh, because oh, that's, think, a, that's a, that's a yeah, really good point. I, I actually, I, I totally... This supports you. Focus on the implications of that. Uh, yeah, thing. this supports your reading, right? Because one would expect the redesignation power to be identical whether the vote was at a meeting or 
or uh, by written resolution. And and the reading advanced by Ukraine suggests that that isn't true, that the voting, that the redesignation power maybe exists, or at least is clear in the contract only with regard to votes taken at a meeting. But the just so everyone's on the same page, the note the notice requirement says that Ukraine has to basically tell uh, investors of any additional procedures which may be necessary, forget that part, and here's the language, if applicable, the conditions under which a multiple series aggregation will be deemed to have been satisfied if it is approved as to some but not all of the affected series of debt securities. So my reading here basically is that that can only mean one thing. And it, it maybe we can argue about what type of notice is specific enough. But what it pretty clearly implies is that Ukraine gets to survey the vote and decide to declare that it has been successful, even though not all of the affected series have approved it. I, I, to me, that that can only refer to redesignation. Yeah, unfortunately, I I think that, so a a couple of things. I want to disagree with your reading. Uh, I don't know how to, because that seems kind of right. Uh, I could assert this, but this is a notice provision, but this is a notice provision, and you're not supposed to shove like seriously important substantive provisions into a notice provision, but there's no such rule in contract law. you could. It, it's just, it's both dastardly and it does make one think, especially if you have context and you realize the Argentines cooked this up out of whole cloth. And maybe that's wrong. Maybe the people who drafted this would be like, no, this is exactly what we had in mind that they should, after the fact, be able to, you know, slice and dice. We just didn't think it was important enough to put it in explicitly. It, it it just looks like a really clever reading that the other side had no clue about. Uh, that said, uh, the, you know, that this is this is the nature of contracts, right? So is is that? I'm not sure. Is that what you're saying, Mark? I, am I am I articulating this correctly? Like, like it's just yeah, this is there. They might not have they might not have contemplated it, but. You know, it's it's the clear implication of that. And even though it's only at a meeting and not outside of the meeting, yeah, that's kind of dodgy, but still you can do it at a meeting, it seems like. I mean, I think so. I, I don't I guess you started by looking for a way to dismiss the language because it's in the notice provision or or whatever. And I, I agree with you that we can't completely dismiss it. Um it seems like not ideal drafting if your goal is to be super clear, because of course it's not super clear. It doesn't say, oh, by the way, we can redesignate. Um, But I guess my point is that I just, we tend to assume that if language can mean only one thing, then that's the thing that it means. Uh, I do think it's really weird that this is just a, not just that it's a notice provision, but that it applies to only one kind of voting. Uh, That to me is is sort of a structural flaw in Ukraine's reading of the text. It just doesn't make sense that you would want the redesignation power to exist only in one setting. 
And just one more, okay, one more irritant that I have is that I, when I read the consent solicitation, and again, I, I should reemphasize that I was delighted that Ukraine was able to do this exchange so successfully, get the maturity extension, but they didn't need to do this redesignation bullshit. They could have gotten permission from the investors who would have given them pretty much anything they wanted. Like, why do this? And then they assert, like not just once, it's something like a half dozen times in the consent solicitation that they have sole discretion to do whatever the hell they want. And so it's they're they're taking an ambiguous weaselly provision, notice provision, and then they're asserting that it gives them sole discretion. Sole discretion power is a lot of power. And it, because it's basically saying we can't be second judge, uh, guessed uh, by some judge under good faith or something else like that, like we have in the contract gotten this. And my experience with sole discretion provisions is you have to say it pretty damn clearly in your contract if you want to get that kind of power. Now, the provision you read does seem to allow them to do it, but I don't know why it just irritated me that they were asserting something that they kind of had to be weaselly to get it. But um, you don't have to comment on that, Mark. We can talk about like the big picture implications because I think there are big picture implications, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to you because I said a bunch of things and I, I don't want to say, this is um, end of the conversation. On uh, um, I was going to ask you. I mean, I think the the I am not troubled by the sole discretion language uh, for reasons you and I have already talked about, and maybe we can elaborate on those a bit more if we want. But the the brief answer is that for me on that is, I guess, has two components. One is I don't know what other standard could possibly. Uh, apply here. But second is this is probably wrong technically to call it a restructuring offer by Ukraine, but it is um, specifying the conditions under which Ukraine will go forward uh, with a, a reprofiling. And that question, when will a party consider itself to be bound uh, to go forward with a deal, that, that question is always sort of left to the sole discretion of the parties. That That's sort of my judgment on that. But I was going to ask you, I mean, I assume what's going on here is everybody knows that a real restructuring is coming down the pike. And so from the perspective of, I guess, I assume it was White and Case, you know, Ukraine's lawyers maybe are capitalizing on the fact that nobody really wants to push back on this deal to set a sort of informal precedent for when the real deal comes down the road. And so part of what I, I think you're raising is why didn't investors scream bloody murder? Would they really have looked bad? If they said, look, we're happy to give you the economic terms, we love you, we're, we're trying to be supportive, but what you're doing is sneaky and take that part out. Like, Why didn't anyone do that? Did someone do that and I just didn't hear about it? I've been asking people, no one I have talked to even seems to have noticed it. 
Like they were just like, we're going to agree to this deal. We're not even going to read this document. I mean, maybe somebody will listen to this podcast and tell us, no, we read it and we're okay with it. If so, then they should not complain when they get screwed the next time. But I think that you're exactly right. This is what I read in the tea leaves. They didn't need this power this time. They're going to do a brutal restructuring next time. And then the power to redesignate at will is going to be crucial. And Maybe this this will help, and um, maybe Mark, you can tell me whether or not I'm wrong. But it it helps me that the implications of all of this, uh, because I have a little brain, very small pea brain, only are obvious when I think of examples. So let's just take two simple examples. Uh, in one example, you have uh, 15 bond series out there. And you have one series where you have a bunch of, you know, obstreperous holdouts, uh, you know, one of the bonds, let's say it's a billion dollars, and you have the other bonds that are equivalent to, say, $40 billion. And you were like, okay, fine. I mean, you know, you can hold out on your one bond. I'm going to restructure the other 14. And in the other 14, I have... Uh, enough. I have more than 50% in each bond, and I have 66.67% plus uh, overall. To me, that's, that's completely kosher. That's the way this aggregation is supposed to work. And it's it's really aggregation plus because it allows you to solve the holdout problem at the margin. I, I think we both agree that that's that's kind of what was imagined by the people drafting this, uh, I think. I mean, I, I, I don't know, but I'm guessing that's what. Now sure, although that, that, that supposes they were imagining redesignation at all, as opposed like, to a yes. process where preliminary discussions sort of reveal where people are, and then you just propose the deal to 15. I, it's not obvious to me which of those were were uh, which of those was what people were envisioning oh you're correct that you're 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 um you're exactly right about that i we don't know we suspect they didn't think about redesignation at all uh, but th- that general model you you and usually you know uh, which bond is going to misbehave and you can leave them out ahead of time because they've sent you threatening letters and all sorts of other stuff and they've tried to renegotiate the deal now, the situation that I think is going to hurt investors and is not one that they are going to like is where you have, let's take the same 15 series of bonds, and there you have 13 series of bonds. Let's say they comprise of the vast majority of the debt stock, $35 billion in uh, debt in principal amount. They all vote no. And you only have two series. And in each of those two series, you get a 70% approval uh, across the series. So each one make you it, get Make 70%. it worse. Have a have 100% approval in one and only 50% approval of the other. Um, really screw somebody. Yeah. yeah. So, but basically, I mean, you're right. That may be, basically you just have uh, only two series and then you say, I'm redesignating just those two series 
after you see that you lost the vote essentially across all the bonds. That is the opposite of what I understand aggregation to be. That just allows the debtor to screw over some small subset of bond series, even though if you did the vote bond series by bond series, you would lose in every series. So, so I think it, it, sorry, like that just seems like like so that this maybe that scenario will never happen, but it does seem like an abuse of this uh, redesignation that could easily happen. Well, lurking in the background here, right, is not fear of redesignation, but fear of Pac-Man. You know, the idea that once you do that, and so to play this out a little further in your your second example, the the issuer restructures the two. Um, and then considers holding another vote on a different proposal that's maybe ever so slightly more favorable than the last one. And because of that, it can now count on a high degree of support from the two that were just restructured. And if it redesignates after the second vote, maybe it can expand it to now we've got three series or five. You're, you can... You're... Yeah, you you're exactly it. right. This this is how you play it out. And the idea that, I mean, uh, uh, okay, the idea that investors are not seeing this and, and are just rolling over because, I mean, Ukraine next time is going to say, look, th- we told you this is what we we're going to do. I'm sorry, Mark, I interrupted you. Please go. No, 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 you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I guess, um, to my mind, this brings us back. So I don't know how seriously to take that risk, especially when we're positing such an extreme scenario where the vast majority of a creditor base says no, and the government's like, oh, the hell with you, I'm going to restructure 10% of my debt, even though it, so there's not much point in doing that for the debt relief. It, it will be, you know, maybe if it's a, it happens to be a near short-term maturity, you, may, you could sort of imagine situations where the government would do this, but, you know, there's, you're taking your reputational hit, I assume, for not much benefit. And I wonder if this is actually a scenario where the reputational penalty is enough to deter significant misuse. Because we're, I mean, I think we're assuming that the debtor is going to have repeat dealings with these folks. Certainly, it's still going to leave, in your example, what, 13 of 15 series of bonds out there. Maybe it's not worth poisoning the well for, I, I don't know. I, I, I just, I wonder whether reputational concerns in this context, at least, are enough to mean we shouldn't worry. Uh, if, I mean, I think our conversations with our Dear friend Ugo Panitza, if there's anything they've taught us is that the reputational cons- the reputational mechanism is always overstated in this market. And I would have thought that Ukraine would not have tried this given the reputational concerns and that Argentina, even though it is Argentina and it tries this kind of shit all the time, just wouldn't have done like the Pac-Man redesignation in the, you know, they might kind of even needed it so i'm not if they let if investors let this go this time they have in effect reduced the votes required for restructuring stoker now maybe they're going to say we set the votes too high and so it's fine that they're they're reduced but i would think 
they would want a little more certainty because right now, if you allow this kind of what you might call sort of free redesignation or unhampered redesignation, plus, I mean, there's nothing stopping Pac-Man, then uh, you don't even know what vote you're going to be required. So maybe I'm it's too 50, right? Like it's, yeah. Yes, you, actually, you're right. 50. It, at, right. The, at the worst, it's 50. And that is to go from 100 to 50. That's kind of a big jump, right? I mean, we're giving fuel to Jay Newman's arguments that should never have agreed to these collective action clauses. They're just giving debtors a way to screw you. Yeah, I mean, I I guess. I feel as if, to my mind, the the kind of lesson here, which I've learned again and again, or the, or the thing that has struck me again and again, is just how much time and effort went into drafting these aggregated CACs. I, I had a, a small role in that process, but mostly as sort of a wallflower. I, I wasn't involved in any material way with the drafting. But, you know, it was a ton of time and energy by all kinds of really important people. And at the end of the day, my reaction is sort of like, well, the holdout stake that you needed was always 50% because of the risk of uh, exit consents. And, you know, I think that that's empirically more or less the correct way to think of it. You know, I don't know of a ton of evidence, but if we look at like the Greek restructuring, for instance, and all of the English law bonds that did not get restructured, as you well know, having worked on this, the the no votes there were way in excess of 25%, way in excess of the CAC voting blocking threshold, and, and in fact, well in excess of 50%. So you could always stop a, a restructuring from going forward and you always more or less needed a 50% stake to do it. And after all this time and effort on the CACs, that's that's kind of where we still are. 50%, thus, thus it has always been, and thus it shall always be. <laughs> alas, alas. But it is interesting. I wonder whether there will be any investor pickup and conversation about wanting to make this clear. And from the issuer side, they will, you know, you would think they would want to make it clear too, if they really think that this is the right that they bargained for, then that one would think they should make it clear. And you would think that in those bonds that are written in the Argentine style, which are mostly the bonds that were issued under New York law, it has nothing to do with New York law. It just so happens that the bonds issued under New York law have this final language and the bonds issued under English law that were, that were I think, designed maybe like a few months before didn't have this language. And my understanding is that there was a conversation about this risk. And so extra language was put into the New York law bonds and there's disagreement about how this happened. But I mean, for goodness sake, people like, figure out which one you want and tell us so that you know there there's not uncertainty although if you don't tell us we'll keep having podcasts about this <laughs> and embarrassing you or us or both yeah i guess we might be the one embarrassed but i think this is this is important enough and it is we're going to have a bunch of sovereign debt restructurings coming and 
the votes are going to be tight. It's not going to be, including, as you pointed out, for Ukraine itself, it's not going to be all friendly and lovey-dovey. We have, uh, you know, Sri Lanka coming up, uh, Suriname, a bunch of them that are going to be contentious. And we got to know how the voting mechanism works. If, If you don't know, this this is potentially a source of delay. And, you know, Mark, I just want to point out one more thing. Uh, in preparing for this discussion, I was talking to my students. I have a small class of sovereign debt aficionados who are very good students. And I, I posed the same question to them. And every one of them who looked at it, I should call out to... Uh, Leah and Harim in particular, who wrote memos about this, and uh, Rishab, they were convinced. They were like, no, you can't do this. This is just a notice provision. Um, now, I, I, I think you can have substantive rights in a notice provision, but they were just like, no, this, surely you can't do this. And they're not experts. They're our students, but they have had contract law. And it, I did wonder if that's their intuition then that's that's going to be the intuition of at least some investors. I think but the I don't intuition know. comes from just is sort of deeper and more simple than that, and it's just that you don't get to choose your voters after the vote, and it that's such an unusual thing to be allowed to do that we would normally expect pretty clear language indicating it, and that is a rule of contract interpretation, although it's. It's sort of my spin on it, but the weirder your preferences are, the clearer you have to be. Do <laughs> you have to be about them? <laughs> and this is not super clear. I think we all agree on that. But I will say that it shouldn't matter that it's in a notice provision. And unless somebody can come up with an alternative reading of that language, and I, I have not been able to do it. Um, you know, I, I I think you're kind of stuck with what it is. Now, you know, we we haven't talked on this podcast, and maybe we've gone on long enough. We should just call it quits. But the government does have to specify in advance the conditions under which it will redesignate. And you know, you could imagine people fighting over what that means. All Ukraine did is basically said, "We'll tell you when it happens," um, and maybe that's not specific enough. So th- there are things that one can fight about. I just uh, I don't see anything that you can easily interpret to forbid redesignation. It's just that, that that's a weird thing to bake into a contract without saying it explicitly. Yeah, you got to say the quiet part aloud. I think is that the right right sort of. I mean, you don't <laughs> have to, but we we are a little reluctant to. Let's just let me put it this way. If there was an alternative reading of that notice provision that was sort of plausible, then the fact that the redesignation reading is kind of unorthodox or unexpected, that might be a reason to reject it in favor of the other plausible reading. But you got to come up with another plausible reading. And, And the one thing that notice provision does not say is you must identify the voting groups up front. It clearly does not say that. Yeah, I'm wondering. Uh, I I know your answer to this is no, and we sh- we should wrap uh, because otherwise, Liana, who runs our podcast and makes sure that it actually works, will not be happy with us. But I I keep thinking, and I think I I'm you convinced me that the answer is no. That 
maybe if you're really abusive, that there is some like good faith challenge you could bring, but which judge is going to want to be looking at these voting provisions exposed? It's not going to happen. But, but all right, that's, that, that's uh, my final unclear two cents about this. And maybe investors will actually pay attention or they're already paying attention and there are discussions. I don't think so, uh, but maybe they will pay attention. Uh, let us see. Mark, any final words on this? No. All right. That's <laughs>